talking about attitude. I can't help getting older. I can't help that. I mean, the, the creaks and the groans. Clint and I were talking this morning about how sometimes you just wonder, boy, Lord, wouldn't today be, today be a good day for, for the rapture? Wouldn't it be good today? Because, uh, you know, the silver hair starts to pop through and, and you can't hide it behind the blonde forever. Uh, forgetfulness happens. And, you know, as you, the thing that happened to me the other day, I had to start buying over 50 vitamins. That doesn't mean there's over 50 in a bucket for y'all that don't know. That means just for people that are over 50 and you start needing special things, you know, anti-creak and anti-groan and I don't know. I, I, I can't help but get older, but I can choose whether or not to be a grouch about it. I get to choose that. I don't have to become a grumpy oaky. although I know a few grumpy okies. I don't have to be that grizzly bear that the grandchildren are afraid of. Although I know a few of those too. And by the way, if you saw James today and his lower... That's how James would look if he didn't know Jesus. Mean. I mean, poor guy. He had three or four bottom teeth pulled this week and they put in a new appliance down there too. So he's, he's in a lot of pain. That's why he and... He, and uh, he won't like it that I pointed out that he left, but he had to. He was in that kind of pain. So I, I just want you to know that I choose not a grouch because grouchy people and 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 well gripey people they're constantly finding fault constantly finding an insult they look at a situation and all they can see is the negative that bothers me sometimes now if this doesn't sound like a mother's day sermon to you i'm sorry i i don't do that kind of thing i just preach what comes next uh most of the time because today, I, I, we're going to read about something that happened in the life of Jesus where he got around some people that are just gripey, grouchy, fault-finding people. There are those in our midst that are just, they seem like they're just called by God to be the critic. And they've constantly got their finger pointed at somebody else. When I was doing that as a kid, my mom told me, you got three fingers pointing at yourself. So I started pointing like this. Because it's not me, it's you. But the fact is there are those who have become a grouch. And by the way, you don't have to be older to become a grouchy person. You can be pretty obnoxious and be young. I've discovered that. But it's interesting to me that Jesus, when he went places and when he went and preached in different areas there in the, in, in the, in the Galilee area especially, he always evoked one of two responses. Either the people loved him and they wanted to follow him and they wanted to listen to him or they just couldn't stand him and they were ready to immediately criticize and, and just... Is, is he, he was either loved or he was hated. He was either welcomed or criticized. He was either obeyed or condemned. I mean, Jesus showed up, he was either glorified or grouched at. And some of us have felt that same way. We show up and, and we're either welcomed or we're condemned. So I want you to open with me, if you would, to Mark chapter number 8. Mark chapter number 8. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Mark 8 and verse number... Well, we're going to read one verse we read last week, but it's mostly in 11 through 13. So Mark 8, verse 10, and we're going to start there and we'll follow along. So uh, Mark chapter 8, Jesus has just fed the 4,000, and then he's crossing the sea. That's what verse 10 says. So begin with me in verse number 10. This is Mark 8, verse 10, where it says... <clears throat> And at once he got into the boat with his disciples and went 
to the district. I'm sorry, I'm reading. I've got four versions in front of me. Let me start over. Immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. Now most of us don't know where that is. Well, that's probably the place called Magdala. We hear Mary Magdalene. This is probably the city where she was from. The district of Dalmanutha, the city of Magdala, quite probably. Now verse number 11. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. In other words, he got back in the boat and left them behind. Now, as we observe through this scripture, I don't want to spend a lot of time here because it's just three or four verses, but notice that it was no sooner did he get onto the shore. He's on a boat ride. He gets out, and people begin to see that it's Jesus. Now, Jesus evoked one of two responses. There was either a big crowd that would come to listen to him or a big crowd that would come to fight him. And on this particular shore, it happened to be a big crowd that came to fight him. And so before there was any ministry, before there were any miracles, before there was even a meal outside the boat, I mean, here comes Billy better than you. The Pharisee, the local Pharisee high bigwig, this local contingent of Pharisees, they pounce from their lair. And by the way, there are some today that they seem to be hiding in their lair waiting to pounce. You make a mistake, or if you just try to do something for Jesus, it's like somebody pops up and says, we tried that once before and it won't work. That's usually Billy better than you. Or his sister, Betty, better than Billy. <clears throat> Moving right along. Now, you know... Sometimes, especially on a, on a day like today, there's people who haven't been as, as, as long in the faith or maybe they haven't studied the Scripture quite as, as, as long as some of the rest of us. And so the idea that I just say the Pharisees, and you all know who I'm talking about, a Pharisee was a local religious authority. Somebody in that church or in that what they would have called the synagogue in those days, it was a local religious authority. And most of the time in that day, the local religious authorities were looked up to. You know, 150, 100 years ago in the United States, clergy were considered, that was a profession. That was somebody like doctors, lawyers, dentists, clergymen. They were looked up to. They were respected. They were elevated in the society. That's not so much that way now. A lot of preachers around the country are looked at just, just, just above used car salesmen, unfortunately. But in that day, the Pharisee was thought of as a, he was a religious authority. He studied the scripture. He, he was somebody who kept the faith. He was somebody who was very careful to keep the law. And so these local religious authorities appear, and they've got a bone to pick with Jesus. Now you might remember the first time that you, you, you met somebody who was kind of special in their own mind. They were precious in their own eyes. They were smarter than everybody they met. You ever meet somebody like that? I heard a story about Will Rogers. Some of you younger folks don't know who Will Rogers is, but Will Rogers, was a, he was a Christian. He was a Christian man, and he was known to be a praying man. And one day, this lady came to him and said, Mr. Rogers, I just, I just need you to pray with me. i got a problem. And he said, well, ma'am, I'd be happy to pray with you, but what's your problem? And she said, well, I guess it's pride, because every time I pass by a mirror, I just can't help it. I've got to just stop and admire my beauty. Is that pride? He said, lady, that ain't pride. That's a mistake. I mean, it's just like, you, that's bad eyesight is what that is. But there are those that are just, they're proud of themselves. They're full of themselves. And maybe that's what was going on with these Pharisees. That's why I call them Brother Billy better than you and his sister Betty. 
These ultra-Orthodox Jews, these Pharisees, they, they confront Jesus, they demand a sign, they come testing him, they come accusing him, they come questioning him, elevating themselves to a place of, I'm better than you in authority. And by the way, as a Pharisee, they would have thought, I am better than you, I keep all the law, and I can tell you the part you're not keeping. Usually with the finger pointing out just about like that. Their pride, their short-sightedness, their religious zealotry, everywhere we find them in Scripture, it drove them to oppose Jesus. Now, were they sincere? Probably. I mean, they were religious people. They'd followed their religion as best they could. They were probably very sincere. Were they honest in their approach? As honest as they knew how to be. I think that they were probably genuine. They were probably trying their best to follow their religion, and maybe they weren't realizing that they were being used by the devil. But mostly they were concerned for the Jewish traditions. It had been their responsibility for almost 400 years in the synagogue to make sure that we followed the law and kept the Jewish traditions. So when Jesus exited this boat and they saw him, they jumped. They went after him. They wanted to stop him from coming into their area. Now, when Jesus showed up somewhere, it was not at all unusual to see healings. It was not at all unusual to see deliverance. It was not at all unusual to see him teach and, 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 and maybe bring wisdom and freedom and, and all different things. All of which, the healing, the deliverance, all of those things, the teaching, none of that got to happen here in Dalmanutha. Why? Because they stopped him at the shore. And I can tell you, these Pharisees probably thought they were doing the Lord's work. They probably had every expectation that what they had done was to, to, to you know, we've, we've put an end to this, False doctrine that this Nazarene preacher is going to try to bring in here. And the collateral damage was that none of the people there in Dalmanutha got to have Jesus' ministry. None of the people there in Jesus' ministry got to experience the healing that he might have been willing to give. None of the people there in Dalmanutha got to experience anything that Jesus would normally have done. Instead, these Pharisees practiced their heckler's veto. Maybe you've heard about that in our modern day. They, they, they decided to shut him down with questions and challenge and testing. So when Jesus answered, it was kind of a terse, short answer. And I'll read it to you again there in verse number 12. After he did this. Now, how many of you parents know what this means? And, and, and you can almost read the mind behind that. Says, That's where you want to go? You really want to say that? Is that really what you meant for me to hear? He sighs deeply within himself, and then he says, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he got back into the boat, and he left. And as far as we can tell, he never again went to this region. If you read through the rest of Scripture, it's not recorded, at least, that he ever went back to this place. And so... As I look at the Pharisees and I say, again, trying to give them all the benefit of the doubt that they were genuine, really intentionally being uh, God-fearing as much as they possibly knew how, how do sincere, genuine people of faith, how do they go off the rails? How do they become these confrontational critics? How do they become these dogmatic, divine detectives? How do they become these, you know, these people who are poisoned by their own attitude? What makes... That, well, in fact, I have to say there's kind of a neutral Pharisee who's just, he's a Pharisee. But then you have the Pharisee, you know, like that. What makes a Pharisee a Pharisee? Because I'm here to tell you, <clears throat> many of their descendants are alive and well in Oklahoma today. 
And they're finding fault and pointing the finger. And you might have met some of them, the harsh critic or the quick judge or, or maybe the harping heckler that just won't hush or the quiet stare. Some of you have had that one. Sometimes, and, and I haven't seen it in this church, but you'll see somebody back there on about the third from the back row and they're like this. What's he running for? wonder what he's going to say. I didn't do that because you had your arms crossed, brother, but I did see it. But there are those people, they're, they're just quarreling, they're honestly questioning or they're quarreling, one of the, whatever, they're finding fault. And by finding fault, they're silencing ministries all over this country. In the last five years alone, this is a terrible statistic, but I have to deal with statistics because they tell a truth that we can't deny. In the last five years alone, 1,000 Baptist churches across this country have closed their doors. 1,000 ministries ended. 1,000 churches that people loved, gave to, ministered in, and, 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 and depended upon. 1,000 of them at least. It's more than that, really. But since 2014, have, have closed their doors. And the vast majority of them, I believe, and I wasn't in all of them, but the vast majority of them were killed by Pharisees. Finger-pointing. The harsh critic of Brother Billy better than you and Betty better than Billy. And we're not, we're not sorry to tell you. So what happened to them? I mean, assuming that they really were believers, assuming that they really were part of the church, they really were in the, in the, in the fellowship and they were part of us. They were a part of that family that, that, they, that then they turned upon. What happened? Well, I can tell you what I believe happened. And then I'll tell you how to keep it from happening. I believe that what happened was they cast off their first love. They fell out of love with Jesus. Now, in the book of the Revelation, and if Don Cleveland was here, he'd be over here giving it this, yeah. There's a place in the second chapter of the book of the Revelation where Jesus is speaking to a church called the church at Ephesus. And they are a good church. They're a a busy church. They're a working church. They're a happy church. In fact, it says it like this. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. I know your deeds, your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you've had perseverance and endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Sounds like a really good church. I mean a working church, a busy church, a a, a church that believes in doctrine and keeping it straight. But then look at what happens next. This is the next line. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. What happens to those people who become the harsh critic? What is it? What is it that breaks them? They gave up on a simple love for the Savior. They gave up on that simple love of God that started them on this road of redemption. And what happens to us is that we get caught up in the rituals of religion, the rules of our religious practice. We get caught up in that. And so what happens is we get, we get busy, and while we're keeping busy, we forget about Jesus. And we become like these Ephesians. Well, I'm busy. I'm doing my thing, preacher. I'm here. But, but they turn into a grouch. Sonny and I got married many years ago now. <clears throat> Although she looks still young. I don't know how it happens, but 
I promised her when I got older, I was not going to be one of these people that only talked about their aches and pains and ailments and, and, and over 55 vitamins. And I was not going to be one of these people that, that has a, a scowl on their face all the time. Because there are some people in church, they look like they've been baptized in pickle juice. You ever notice that? And they've got a frown on their face. In fact, they're scaring small children just walking in the place. I know sometimes I'm a little bit intense. I'm looking at, honestly, that's you, brother. That's you, preacher. I can't help it. I told Sonny I'm going to be that person. I'm going to have a smile on my face. And as, as I've let things get to me over the years, I've noticed that my frown has started to become almost permanent. And I looked in the mirror the other night and I thought, who are you and what have you done with the happy Robert I used to know? And I realized there's something about attitude here that I have let escape my notice. And I'm preaching to me as much as anybody else. I have, in, in many ways, I've become so busy doing the work of the ministry that I forgot that I was loving Jesus, and so I do ministry. I don't do ministry because I love Jesus. I, do, I love Jesus, and therefore I do ministry. I think I might have said that twice exactly the same way, but you know what I'm talking about. There are places and times when we can cast off our first love, and a busy, active, even product, productive church is not necessarily right. There was Ephesus who drifted away from their first love and back into being religious Pharisees. And you can see that in the Pharisees. And let me give you the demonstration again back there in chapter 8 of Mark. The, the, the Pharisees demonstrated their bias in the thing that they demanded from Jesus. They demonstrated that they were already biased against Jesus because if they really thought He might be God, would you go to God and test Him? Would you go to God and say, God, would you prove you're God by doing what I tell you to do? Because if you'll do what I tell you to do, then you're really God. What? That doesn't make any sense. If He really is God, you're not going to go test Him. If you have any inclination that He might really be God, you might say as Gideon did, Lord, I, you're asking me to do something big. Can I have some, can I have some confirmation here? That's, that's not necessarily wrong, although I wouldn't put out a fleece today. But they demonstrated their bias that they didn't believe that He was God's Son by going and testing Him. They thought, they thought what they were going to do is prove He wasn't. And so they tested Him in public. They weren't open-minded looking to see if Jesus really was the Messiah. No, they had their mind made up. They were biased against Him already. And that's why they, designed, they, they demanded some big flashy sign from heaven. We talk about this several times here in the last several weeks because here Jesus... I mean, think about this. He's just left a three-day revival where people were being fed, I mean, people were being taught, and people were being ministered to, and then he fed 4,000 men plus their families, and then he gets in the boat, and the very next thing that happens is hear these people pointing their finger at him, demanding a sign. He could have told them about the 4,000 men with the seven loaves and the few small fish. could have told them about the 5,000 men with the five loaves and the two small fish. He could have told them about the healings and the, the, the deliverances. He could have told them all of that, but what they wanted was something that they came up with. No, no, it's not good enough that you did all those signs. We want something big, flashy, that we can prove really is, we, is something we told you to do. Like, I don't know, turning back on the manna, for instance. At one point they were talking about, you know, Moses gave the manna in the wilderness. They were suggesting it that way. Or maybe that they wanted was the sun to stand still as it happened in the day of Joshua. What I think he ought to have done is turn the frogs back on. Y'all want a big flashy sign? Here's some frogs. That would have shown them. But thank God Jesus wasn't quite as smart aleck as, as some of us. But they demanded Jesus and something else. That's what it really was. 
Okay, Jesus, we see you. We see what you're doing. But we also want something more. They wanted an experience. They demanded Jesus and. So many today are caught up in that trap of Jesus isn't enough. I've got to have Jesus and a laser show. I've got to have Jesus and a fog machine. I've got to have Jesus and signs and wonders. I've got to have Jesus and social justice. You know what happens eventually? If you have to have something along with Jesus, eventually it's the first thing is you want the laser show. Oh, yeah, and then we'll talk about Jesus later on. Oh, I want the signs and wonders. Yes, oh, yeah, and Jesus too. Oh, oh, I want... See, what happens is we get that out of order. And these people had done that. That's what made them a Pharisee. I have to ask myself, though, a lot of times in churches across America today, when did Jesus stop being enough? When did it have to be Jesus and... I mean, when we do that, we're living like Ephesians. We're, we're losing our first love, or even Laodiceans. And they denied him a chance to minister by, his, by their harassment. The vocal critic is always able to distract the minister. The vocal critic and the, the finger pointer is always able to, to, to obfuscate enough that the church gets off track until the ministry is derailed or at least da damaged. So, Losing your first love. How can I guard against that? How can I keep that from happening to me? Because the last thing I want to do, if I ever became a Pharisee, I don't know, I, I'd have to get out of the ministry. You say, well, I might be now, preacher. Well, then we need to talk about that. <laughs> How would I do it? How do I keep from becoming a Pharisee and losing my first love? I want you to turn with me to Psalm 37. Psalm number 37. We're going to spend some time here before we go back and finish up in the book of or the book of Mark. There, Psalm thirty-seven. This is one of the most beautiful psalms that David wrote. It's got so many of the things. Many of us will be able to quote several of the verses from this psalm, though you may not have known where they were. We're not going to read the whole thing because it's a, a good long psalm. We're going to read the first eight verses or so, and I want you to hear what David says. And I want to read it to you out of the King James. So take that down, Zerbeth, for just a second unless you can throw King James up there. I want you to hear it this way. It comes out. This is uh, Psalm 37, verse 1. Fret not thyself because of evildoers. Neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Light thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. And He shall bring forth thy righteousness as the, as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not thyself because of Him who prospereth in His way, because of the man who bringeth wicked schemes to pass, or desires to pass, devices to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Now, I wanted you to see it that way because it just means don't fret. But understand, fretting is something from within you. That's why the King James, I think, correctly puts it, fret not thyself. You do this to yourself. You turn yourself into an angry critic. You turn yourself into a grump. It's not your children's fault. It's not your parents' fault. It's not your boss's fault. You become grumpy all by yourself. Oscar the Grouch was not turned into Oscar the Grouch by the people on Sesame Street. It was the people that built the puppet, but moving right along. How did the neutral, I'm trying to do my best for God Pharisee, become that angry, vicious Pharisee? How? By giving in to fretting. I mean, look around you folks, there's a whole lot of fretting going on. 
We're in that day and age where the critic becomes a, a... I mean, listen, some of us need a critic. We need people to watch over us and help us. And we need that counselor who will help us to see our, our, our problems. We need that sometimes. But when that critic becomes the acidic, you know, he, all he does is, 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 is criticize and, and find fault, it, he does that by giving in to fretting. Now, that word fret, interesting Hebrew word, it means to burn from within. Maybe you've used the phrase that burns me up well that's what it's talking about here being burning up on the inside and so what the critic does what the fretter does he wants to be that guy who's always stirring the coals you know this is, fire starts to go out and it's almost back to normal and everybody's about to get along again and here comes the critic to stir the coals some more make sure the fire jumps up again so you can't relax so you can't forgive so you can't forget the command here is fret not thyself. Do not fret. Don't stir and burn. Let me give you three quick reasons why you shouldn't do that. First of all, stir and burn, or being a fretting critic, it corrupts your own soul. You're going to corrupt yourself if you start trying to be a critic. If you're a fretter, you're going to corrupt your own soul because a negative attitude will kill your project before you even get started. I mean... Have you ever heard somebody say, how you doing? And the other person says, pretty good under the circumstances. Well, you're half, you're half whipped now. Where's your attitude? Your, your fretting will cause you to miss out on the beauty of the things that are going on around you. I know most of you go on vacation once or twice a year. Maybe you go to a camp or something like that, and it's, it's considered vacation. <laughs> uh, I have a problem sometimes where I go on vacation. I've looked forward to this thing six, eight, ten months, and we get there, and we unpack, and we're sitting in the room, or we're getting ready to go do something, and the first thing that occurs to me is, only six more days, and i got to go back to work. <laughs> so i got to jam into that vacation everything I possibly can, or else I won't enjoy it enough because in just five more days, i got to go back to work. And I get up the next day, and it's just four more days. And I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to leave my grandsons. I'm going to go back to. I'm going to have to do some more mail. Three more days, and it just ruins the whole vacation. Why? Because I'm corrupting myself by fretting about something I cannot change. A negative attitude is a choice. It is a choice to be a harsh critic or a quick judge, and it'll sour you until nobody wants you around. But not the only reason is that it will sour your. Sour, uh, it'll it'll uh, it'll hurt you. So not only should you cut out the fretting because it'll hurt you, but fretting rubs off on other people. You ever notice that? If you get around somebody that's a critic, somebody that's fretting, you know what's going to happen? You're going to pick up their offense. You could be walking down the road, minding your own business, not bothering anybody. Somebody comes up beside you, and they got a problem, and they want to tell you about it, and they just fret for a while with you. You know what you do? You go off of fretting. It, it's, it's contagious, y'all. If you're going to be somebody that's like that, please don't come around me. I mean, get your mind right and then come find me. Or if you need counsel, that's different. But you get around like-minded people and you start fretting, some of them are going to join you. And, and we love that because it validates our anger. It validates our uh, decision to fret. I mean, it can be a joy killer. It can be a revival stopper. It's like that... that that note that comes to the preacher right after service. Here, preacher, could, 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 you, could you just read this later on? It's, it's just for you. It's just between you and me. Just read this. And the preacher just takes it, and it didn't feel like money in his hand. And by the way, preachers know what money in the hand feels like. So you put that in your pocket, 
And you wait till later, and then after lunch, you open it up, and, you know, somebody gave it to you after service. Maybe he thought that was the greatest service sermon he'd ever heard. And so you opened it up, and, oh, brother, that was a wonderful sermon. But it would have been so much better if you weren't so fat. Now, you look at me weird, but that happens in churches, in ministries, all over the world, where somebody decides, you know what, I just got to tell him. He mispronounced the word Habakkuk. And I need to tell him. Do you know he got Ephesians and Galatians reversed when he gave the books of the Bible? And he's a preacher! Fretting rubs off. And you can kill someone else's joy. Go from hero to zero in 7.37 seconds. Joyful to resentful in one conversation. But not only does it hurt you, not only does it hurt others, but it... uh, it doesn't become, it doesn't look good on a servant of God. Fretting just really doesn't look good. Stirring up those coals and stoking that fire makes Christianity look fake and false. I know uh, uh, Wayne and Narita have, have recorded some music. I've done the same thing. and I, I, don't, I don't advertise or sell mine because of how, how wonderful it was. <clears throat> but... I remember the first day I went into the recording studio and my producer was there with me and I was sitting at the recording. I was just, wow, this is cool. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay somebody money to record my voice. Didn't sound so exciting after that. But then I'm sitting there and, and the guy's at the desk and he's got all these sliders over there and the, he's the engineer and here's my producer and here I am. And, and he says, okay, so what kind of music are we recording today? I had the track, I was giving it to him. And I said, it's gospel music. It's, it's things I wrote myself. He says, oh. Okay, gospel, huh? Uh-huh. And I thought, hmm, there's a story behind that. So I asked him, what's, what, have you had a bad experience? He said, well, just the other day, let me tell you. And he began to tell me about this couple who was in there just two days before who had been in there to record their gospel music. It was a man and his wife. They were in there, and, and, and they had gone into the recording booth, and they thought it was a dead mic. Boy, you get caught in things like this. And he goes in there, and she goes in there, and she does something he doesn't like just right, and he just gives her a fit. I mean, he's really ragging on her. And then he turns around after he gets her taken care of, and he waves at the guy in the booth as if, okay, you can turn on the, the, the microphone now. He says, okay, let's do this for Jesus. After he's just been yelling at his wife in front of other people. I mean, it's bad enough to yell at your wife, but don't do it in front of other people. That's what they make bedrooms for. Being a grump, being a grouch, being a harsh critic does not become the child of God. It doesn't make uh, it, it makes Christianity look false. I've heard from people that uh, when Sundays are the worst day for for waitresses and waiters at at at, at uh, restaurants because a lot of Christian people go out after church and they go eat, but they don't tip real well, and they're usually pretty demanding. They get in there and they pray over their meal and then they stiff them on the tip. Can you imagine that? It happens. And it makes Christ look bad because here we are, got on a Christian t-shirt, if you go to that kind of church, praying before your meal and then treat the wait staff like they weren't really people. Bad Christian examples are remembered far longer than good examples. And the fretting Christian or the Pharisee of 2019... I wonder sometimes if the constant bickering, the consistent negativity doesn't cause Jesus to just go, 
Really? That's what we're going with this week? That's what we're going to do? Friends, we know better. And we usually get away with it because nobody's there to call us on it. We need that person, the iron sharpening the iron, to give us that, hey, 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 listen, you're fretting. Stop it. See, I can't come into your, to your house when you're yelling at your wife and say, Stop it! But Psalm 37 can. Fret not. Fret not thyself. It's time to let Jesus be Lord, even of our attitude. Now, not only should we cut out fretting, but we need to count on God's faithfulness. And I'm, I don't have time to go through the rest of the psalm the way I'd like to. But in chapter 37, verse number 3, it says it so sweetly. It says we can just good. Thou dwell in the Lord, thou shalt be fed. You can be fed. You can count on his faithfulness because God will always feed his sheep. He will always supply our genuine needs. Forgetting this, when we forget that God's going to take care of me, that God's going to watch over me, God's going to take care of everything I need that's a genuine need, God is faithful to provide no matter what we what we think, how big the, the thing might need to be. Um, I was walking down the road one. In fact, sometimes you're the answer to somebody else's need. I was walking down the road being a mailman one day. Minding my own business, not bothering anybody. I got into my truck. I drove my truck down the way, and somebody I had just passed, he was, he was working on his camper shell. Now he's laying on the ground underneath the camper shell. It has fallen on him. And I'm walking, I'm driving by that. I think, I don't think that's supposed to be that way. So I ran up against the curb there, jumped out of the mail truck, and I walked over there, and I said, are you okay? He said, I'm okay. I just can't get this thing off of me. And so I reached up there. It was light as a feather to me because of where I was standing. His arms were pinned underneath him. He couldn't get up. And so I just lifted it off. Here I was in the right place at the right time. God allowed me to be a part of his need. God always supplies our genuine needs, and God will always guard and keep his flock. The health and well-being of God's family is up to him. It says, you shall be fed. God's word, God's work is to maintain and keep what God has given us. Many of you know that Sonia and I went through a tornado back in 2011. And, and it was amazing to see what, what we were able to, to get back out of that mess. If you saw that, you would have thought, ain't nothing left. But we got most of our home movies. We got most of our, our pictures out. Most of our clothes were ruined and things like that. But... But still, after the insurance paid off, turned out to be the greatest garage sale in history. And the insurance paid enough to let us build a new house. So it worked out real well. Now, I don't recommend God providing for you that way, but God who is faithful can do that. And he did. To forget is to be, forgetting that is to be fretting. Okay, and then God will satisfy us when we don't get all we would like to have. You know, many of us have kind of started looking out there at other people's, toys and other people's goods and we kind of start looking around and our, our eyes have a tendency to roam. God knows what is good for you, but he also knows what would be bad for you. The apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He prayed three different times, Lord, remove this from me. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for thee for power is made perfect in weakness. And he left him with the thorn. God knew what he needed. I've learned as Paul said, to be content in whatsoever place he puts me. Because we see God's gift, that is, he supplies. God's grace, he sustains. God's goodness, he satisfies. You know, it's hard to be fretting when you're counting your blessings. 
It's hard to be fretting when you're counting your blessings. And then the last one is in verse number four. That's here in Psalm 37, verse four. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of your heart. This may be the most important thing I say all morning. I know you're, I've, I've, I've talked a long time, but this may be the most important thing I say this morning. If you'll delight in him, you will be given the desires of your heart. Now, he may change the desires before he gives them to you. But understand this, if you will delight in him first, he'll give you the desires and you'll get to enjoy both. If you delight in your desires first and then try to get God to help you get your desires, you won't enjoy either one. You might get your desires, but if you'll delight in him and not your desires, you'll, 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 uh, you'll enjoy both. So, Scripture says, for what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? So my question this morning as I close, what is your goal? What are you delighting in? What was the delight of those Pharisees that came and, and, and confronted Jesus? What was the delight that they had? They were delighting in their position. They were delighting in their ability to shut down what Jesus was about to do. They were chasing success by saying, we'll take care of this Nazarene pretender. We'll show all these other Pharisees that couldn't do it that we can and I wonder today if Baptists can fall into that same trap. Can we get to be chasing success and miss Jesus? Can we get to be chasing prestige and, and having our notice in the, in the newspaper and forget about our Lord? Is our reputation more important to us than that person down the road that might come into our church with a little bit of a smell and a dirty shirt? We're better for them to hear about Jesus than in a loving church that will welcome them. Can churches lose their first love? Well, evidently, Ephesus did. Yes, churches can. And churches can be ruined and destroyed by critical spirits, by fretting spirits. They can have a destroyed fellowship because of what happened there in, in Mark chapter 8. That finger-pointing critic. I see what you did. And it almost always happens like this. Brother, what are we going to do about Sister so and so? What are we going to do about... And you fill in the blank. I don't think God wants us to be that kind of Christian. Because I wonder sometimes, when I've done my thing for Jesus, and I've tried to be my religious best, do I see the sparkle in the eye of the Savior, or do I get this? <sighs> now Jesus loves us, this I know, for the Bible tells us so. But I know there's got to be times when He's disappointed. When we know better and we went ahead and did it anyway. Like the prodigal's father who said, if that's really what you want, you can have your way, but you're going on a long journey, son. And when you get back, I'll still be here. There are days, I believe, as individuals, as families, as churches, where rather than a smile on the face of the Savior, he's sighing deeply within himself. And I'm telling you, I want to be here in a place in my life where when I know if I close my eyes in death tomorrow, I would open my eyes with the Lord Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. That's not because I'm a preacher. That's because I'm a child of the living God. And every last one of us has the opportunity, the responsibility, and, and, and really the promise that he will welcome us in. I don't want to sneak in the back door hoping nobody notices. I want to go straight to the Father. I want to run to the arms of my Father and have him welcome me in. I said it before. Your mood may be based on circumstances or even on some physiological thing. You're, just, you're not feeling good today. But I get to choose my attitude, and you get to choose your attitude. 
you can make a choice to rejoice. And he offers salvation to all. He offers this good attitude to all. And I, I guess my real problem is, I wonder how many of us, if somebody came into your house and started talking about your husband or your wife or your kids, the way you hear people talking about other church members, would you put up with that? Would you just open your ear and say, here, fill my ear with garbage? Or would you say, now wait a minute. I know him or her, my daughter, my son, my brother, my sister, my mom or my dad. I know them better than that. You don't talk about them around here like that. You take that garbage out. I believe God gave the church family for that reason. To be one another's champions. To be one another's support. To be one another's helpers. To, to love one another as God has given us the opportunity to love. I can tell you this right now. No matter what somebody says about you, your mama's going to defend you. I know my boy's made some bad choices, but he's a good boy. I've seen that on TV so many times when they're carting the guy off in handcuffs and mama says, but he's a good boy. <laughs> Mama's always believed that. Well, I'm here to tell you, Jesus believes that in you too. He sees your potential and he wants you to live up to that potential. And you can't do it being a negative Nelly or a negative Ned. Today, Jesus offers us salvation through his son, through his precious blood that was shed. God offers us that salvation through what Jesus did at the cross. And if you have yet not accepted him as your Lord and Savior, he wants you to be saved today. You don't have to even have a good attitude. If you'll just come in and admit, I got a bad attitude, preacher, and I'm a sinner, and I'm mad about it, he'll save you even then. If you'll just repent. Many of us today, I believe, need to repent. We need to ask God to forgive us for our attitudes, for our quickness to criticize, for our quickness to judge. And be more like Mama. And say, yeah, I know, that's a bad choice, but I still love them, and I'll still defend them, and they'll always be my family. Let's pray.